Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 as we continue in our study of this great chapter. I don't think any of you will be surprised to hear that the concept of um, family, traditional family, is under attack in our culture today. Right? All you need to do is look up at the billboards in our town, or maybe scroll through your social media feed, or maybe read a headlining article on your favorite new site. The concept of family is being destroyed right before our eyes. In a poll that was taken some 50 years ago in the 1970s, and, and when we think about 50 years, it sounds like a long time, but all things considered, 50 years is not that long, okay? So 50 years ago, there was a poll taking, and less than one in 10 disagreed with this statement. The traditional family is important to Americans and should be preserved. 80% of those who were interviewed chose a happy family life as their number one goal, more important than fulfilling a career or the opportunity to develop as an individual or to make a lot of money. Why was that the case back then? Well, because healthy family relationships are crucial part into growing into a happy, productive, and law-abiding citizen. Well, today we live at a time when everything seems to be flipped on its head, including this concept of a family. We are told that we can have a well-functioning family with two mothers, for instance, or two fathers, or we can have a family where a mother functions like a father, looks like a father, or vice versa. Family is under attack. And although you here sitting or probably don't come from such a family, I think we're going to, and even in our culture, think about it, where we're at right now with our families, in our culture, probably some 10, 15 years from now, we will have people in our congregation who are um, restored from same-sex marriages, for instance who will be coming into our churches, and even now, who will be saved, who will need to be shepherded, who will need to be counseled on what it means to be a well-functioning family as God designed this family to be. And so I don't think anyone sitting here comes from this family. Never the case, sin had ravaged many families even before the sexual revolution that we're experiencing today in America. So many of us sitting here may have been scarred from your family upbringing. And maybe you're even wondering if you're younger, if you'll be able to even develop your own family as a result of what you've gone through and experienced. But friends, here is a passage before us here in Romans chapter eight that offers us great hope. In fact, when we talk about family, Romans chapter eight verses 14 through 17 are probably one of the most highlighted verses when it comes to the family of God. Friends, if you're a believer here this morning, if you're a believer in Christ, you may have come from a bad family where you would characterize as a bad family, maybe troubled family. 
But you are today part of a family, whether or not you realize it, family of God. You are a child of God. And so for us, we need to learn what it means to be a child of God. And when we do, it will help us to live successfully, even with all this earthly baggage that we may be carrying. We've learned already in Romans chapter eight, if you look with me at verse, verses nine through 11, for instance, that we are regenerated by the spirit of Christ, that we have been given life. That's what regeneration is. Regeneration is to receive a new life. Today, we're gonna look at another aspect of a family, namely adoption. And how is adoption different from regeneration? Regeneration is receiving a new life. Adoption is receiving a new relationship. Receiving a new relationship. And this is what we're gonna highlight and focus on here in verses 14 through 17 of Romans chapter eight. I invite you to begin our reading with, with verse 12. With verse 12. Follow along as I read. Paul writes, so then brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be also glorified with him. Glorified with him. What an amazing passage. I want us to consider here this uh, sort of grand big idea of, of what Paul has for us here. The believer in Christ is adopted and is assured by the spirit that he is a beloved child of God. He is adopted and he is assured by the spirit that he is a beloved child of God. I want us to consider three aspects of our sonship or our adoption, three aspects of our sonship. First, the confidence in verse 14. Then we're gonna look in verses 15 and 16, the characteristics of our sonship, and then the confirmation in verse 17 of our sonship. Number one, the confidence of our son sonship. Look with me at verse 14, four. Four, you will notice that Paul here, or this verse, does not start a new paragraph, even doesn't even start a new thought. Rather, it builds on what we learned last week from the previous verses. For, right? Every time you see the word for it, it sort of provides a, a further explanation. It's as if Paul is saying, let me explain to you. Let me give you further support to what I just said. And 14 verses here, in, in uh, Romans 8, they start with the word for because Paul is just bringing one argument after the next. And so what did we learn previously from these verses that Paul is building on now in verse 14? Well, look with me at verse 9. In verse 9, we are told that the Spirit is in us and His presence marks us out as those who belong to Him. 
That's verse nine. Verse 10, we were told that the spirit is life and and when he moves in, he makes us alive. And the basis of our new birth, again, regeneration now, is Christ righteousness. Christ righteousness. That's the basis. That's why we are alive. That's why we cause to be born again. Christ active obedience is the basis of our new life in the spirit. And then Paul proceeds then, because we're born again, because the spirit is in us, the Christ himself is in us, it is his spirit. We saw last week that we don't owe anything to the flesh. You owe sin nothing, you owe God everything. And we need to have this right perspective Because we're in the spirit, by the spirit, Paul encourages us to put sin to death. And in fact, he he just, he, he states it in the indicative. He says, this is what you do. This is what believers do. This is what they practice as a result of their proper perspective or proper attitude. Because they understand that they owe sin nothing and they owe God everything. Therefore, by the spirit who is in them, they put to death the deeds of the body. And all who put sin to death, then they demonstrate that they what? They have life at the end of verse 13. You will live. You are alive today, and there's this promise of eternal life in the spirit. That's verse 13. Now back to 14. For, he says, all who are led by the spirit. What is this leading? I'm sure you've, you've asked yourself this before. For all who are led by the spirit. And, and I think, again, context, right, needs to drive our interpretation of whatever passage we're studying. Well, in the context, Paul, he's not talking about some subjective leading. You know, I feel like the Lord, we, we prayed for a while, and I feel like the Lord is leading us to move from California to uh, what have you, Texas or something else, right? Or, or I feel like the Lord is leading me to quit this job and to take another, or to enroll in this college or the other. That's not what he is saying here. This is not this subjective leading, right? He's not talking about having the Spirit's guidance, for instance, in making a certain decision. No, in the context, Paul is focusing on two aspects of the Spirit. Number one, the Spirit leads you by helping you to abandon all trust in yourself and to trust Christ for your right standing before God. That's the first thing. And that's really what the first half of chapter eight is all about. The spirit leads you to abandon all trust in yourself and to trust Christ for your right standing. It is the work of the spirit to convict you of your sin. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to point you to Christ for he alone satisfies the righteous requirements of the law, verse eight of chapter eight. What the law could not do, he says, Because of our weakness, because of our sin, because of our inability, God does in his son, secures perfect obedience, and then this spirit leads us, leads sinners to abandon all trust in ourselves, still trying to do something, still trying to live as if we can please God, as if we can somehow grab his attention so that he would be pleased with us. He will never be pleased with us, friends, apart from his son. And the Spirit causes us, convicts us of sin to drop all of our pretense, to drop all of our pretending, and to look to Christ, and to put our faith in Him and Him alone for our salvation. That's what the Spirit does. 
yet more closely to our context and to this verse, verse 14, we see that for all who trust Christ, who are connected to him, right, in union with Christ, as we have discussed in the previous studies of Romans chapter eight, who are no longer in the flesh but in the spirit, here's the second thing the spirit does. The spirit leads you by enabling, by helping you to overcome sin and to please Christ. That's what verse 13, 12 and 13, right, indicate. It is the Holy Spirit who leads you in your effort against sin. For all who are being led by the Spirit to do what? Verse 13, to put to death the deeds of the body. To put to death the deeds of the body. It is the Spirit, and I want you to notice something about this, this verb here, who are being led. It's a, it's a passive verb, and it is a continual verb. In other words, it is something that the Spirit does to you. It's not something that you do. It is something that the Spirit does to you, and he does it continually. And he does it to all who belong to Christ. Thomas Schreiner, he says this, This, this verb, suggests that the spirit is the primary agent in Christian obedience. That it is his work in believers that accounts for their obedience. Although this does not exclude the need for believers to follow the spirit, it emphasizes that any human obedience is the result of Christ's or of spirit's work. So, friends, here's the the picture here. It is the spirit who takes control of your life. Every aspect of your life, and he brings it and he directs it towards God so that you would be pleasing to him in his sight. That's what the spirit does. Now, how does he do it? Well, we discussed the last time, right? We looked at verses 12 and 13. He does it in such a way that he causes us to turn from sin and to turn to him by, as we discussed, setting our minds on the spirit, which is setting our minds and thinking and meditating on the word of God by saying no to sin and saying yes to the spirit and to his word. He does that. It is his work that he does in us, that he produces in us. And so he says in verse 14, for all who are being led By the Spirit, these are sons of God. So what is his point? He says that if the the Spirit of Christ leads you in such a way, if you see that you are led by the Spirit to abandon your hope, to abandon yourself, to abandon all trust in your performance and to look to Christ, and continually today you are being led to forsake sin, and to please the Lord, there's this direction in your life, then you are a son of God. That's what he is saying here. Then that confirms the fact that you are a child of God. This is what gives you confidence that you are son of God. And notice that there's this exclusion here. Only those who are led by the spirit, only these, it's, it's very emphatic here. He says, those who are led, these are sons of God. Those who are not led, they're not sons of God. Now, sons of God here is a, it's a very loaded term. It's the first time Paul mentions 
this wonderful term in the book of Romans, and it will be the theme for at least this section here that we're, that we're studying this morning and also in the following uh, few verses here. And there's this ongoing debate about the difference of Paul's use of sons or child. Look, he uses both. He says, these are sons of God. In verse 15, he says, adoption of sons. And then he switches in verse 16, child of God. In verse 17, if children. So some commentators, they, they argue that the reason Paul uses sons in this passage specifically is because of the Roman culture in which only the sons, they enjoyed this honored position and were rightful heirs to the family inheritance. Only sons inherited that, not daughters. So perhaps that's the reason why, but since Paul goes back and forth in verses 16 and 17 and uses this, these terms interchangeably, I think there's um, maybe, maybe there is a significance, but, but perhaps not such that some commentators, they want to draw between the two. But think about this. Consider this amazing, this term, right? You are a son of God. You are a child of God. Think about this. Um, you were once an enemy of God, right? We don't get to Romans 8 without going through Romans 1 through 7. And that is why this is so significant. This is why this is so out of the world. He is now saying, you are a son of God. But back in your mind, you just read that, no, Romans 5 said that we were enemies of God. We were enemies of God. And get this, God not only, he not only reconciles with you and he says, okay, let's just put our enmity, our hatred, right, aside and let's just be friends, you know, I'll move you into my neighborhood, you know. I'll, I'll let you buy a house next to me and you will situate your family and we will be buddies. We will help each other out as neighbors and, and we won't have this enmity or hatred with one another. That's, that's not what he does. He not only moves us into his neighborhood, but he moves us into his household. Into his household, he says, you are sons of God. I think this is amazing. How did we become sons of God? How did we become children of God? Well, in Galatians 3.26, we are told in sort of a parallel passage to Romans chapter 8 that you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That's how he did it, through faith. You were born of the spirit, verse 10 of Romans chapter 8. Once dead, now you're alive in Christ. And the ongoing indication that you are now a child of God is the Spirit's leading and governing of your life. Active faith. What is the confidence? What is the confidence of your sonship? Friends, it is that you believe in Christ and the Spirit is leading you to progress and to become more like Christ. Paul wants his readers to be sure that only those who trust in Christ for their right standing before God and enabled by the Spirit to overcome sin and to please the Lord, which is, which is true of every believer. They may, they may vary how they do it, but that is true of every believer. They can have confidence in their sonship, not just in their friendship, but in their sonship. They're part of the family. Rightful heirs, as we will soon see. 
Now, in verses 15 through 17, Paul quickly turns and he explains some implication of verse 14. And, and he turns now to give us two characteristics of our sonship. What does it mean to be a son? So, so we turn from confidence of our sonship to characteristics of our sonship in verses 15 and 16. Look what he says in verse 15, for you have not received the spirit of slavery. Again, look at this, for he continues to explain now. He builds on what he just said in verse 14. You are led by the Spirit, and if you are led by the Spirit, you are a son of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Friends, the Spirit ushers in a new relationship with God. Ushers in a new relationship with God. As I just said, at one point, we were simply we were not simply from a, a broken family, but we were enemies of God. We were alien to God. We were objects of his wrath, but now in Christ we have a new relationship. So consider these two characteristics in verses 15 and 16. Number one, as God's children, we have freedom from fear of condemnation. Freedom from fear of condemnation. Now, there's a difficult interpretive issue here in verse 15. It seems to be every two verses or so <laughs> in Romans chapter 8. There's some kind of interpretive issue. So what's going on with verse 15? Well, look at your Bibles, right? Um, and the discussion is, the question is, how should we understand these two spirits that are mentioned here in verse 15? So we have, uh, generally, we have three sort of offerings three positions. Number one, some, as is the case with NASB, the Bible that we use, some take this spirit to refer both, both of the spirits to refer to human spirit. So in verse 15, for you have not received a spirit, lowercase s, but you have received a spirit, lowercase s. You see that? So all referring to human spirit in the sense of human disposition or human mood or temper. Others take the first to refer to the human spirit, but the second refers to the Holy Spirit. So like if you have an ESV Bible, you will see first is short or um, small letter. The second one is capital letter. Now, others, they take both to refer to the Holy Spirit. So which one is it? Well, um, I think Galatians chapter four, verse six is, is helpful for us in determining at least what the second spirit is saying or what the second spirit is referring to. Look with me or, or just follow along. I'll read Galatians chapter four, verse six. And here's what Paul says to the churches in Galatia. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Because you are sons, God sends forth his spirit into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So this verse clearly refers to the Holy Spirit. It is a clear, I think, parallel to verse 815. And in light of our context here in Romans chapter 8, which is all about life in the Spirit, most understand, actually, most of your uh, translations here, they take this second spirit to refer to the Holy Spirit as the spirit of adoption. But also, in addition, Paul's structure of this verse is sort of like in this parallel fashion, right? He, he's basically, he, he seems to be referring to the same spirit, 
In other words, you have received the spirit, not this spirit, but that spirit. So after wrestling with, with this verse for a while, I think that both spirits, they refer to the Holy Spirit. So that this verse can be translated this way as John Murray helpfully suggests, he says this in paraphrasing verse 15, you did not receive the Holy Spirit as a spirit of bondage, but as a spirit of adoption, right? So what is Paul saying here? You can go home and you can wrestle and you can read. I can give you resources to to read more on verse 15 and it's uh, um, meaning. But what is Paul saying here? I think here's what he's saying. When the spirit of God came into your heart, he did not make you a slave again. Slave to what? Slave to what? Well, remember, Romans 6 comes before Romans 8. God's emancipation proclamation pronounced our freedom from sin pronounced our freedom from slavery to our sinful nature. Romans 6, 4, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What does it mean for us practically? Well, friends, in our struggle that we have with sin within us, we are not slaves, helplessly struggling against this cruel master. No, we are sons. That's what verse 15 says. Sons of the living God with power to overcome evil even though we struggle. It is in this struggle. And even, friends, and even when we are temporarily overcome by sin, we are never ultimately defeated. Our defeat is impossible. Why? Because you are sons. Because you are already sons. We're in the family. We have this position of great honor. We have access to family resources. Therefore, don't fear. You have not received the spirit that leads you to fear again. What were we afraid of before? Were you afraid of anything as an unbeliever? What were you afraid of before? Well, we're afraid of eternal consequences. And don't let anybody confuse convince you that they're not afraid of standing before God. All of us were. When we're laying in our bed, right? At the end of the day, as unbelievers, we know that there is someone who will require from us, right? Righteousness, and we have none. And we are afraid of the consequences. Why? Because the law of God instills fear. The law of God includes death penalty for those who break the law. But do we fear now? No, we don't fear now. Why? Because sin was condemned in the body of Christ. Sin was condemned in the body of Christ so that we became God's children. That's what the beginning of chapter eight says, right? He condemned sin in the flesh and so that the righteous requirement of the law is now fulfilled in you. We are freed from sin's condemnation, beloved, Why? Because we have placed our faith in Christ. And knowing, and knowing that there's now no condemnation, we we want to please him now. It motivates us to live for him in such a way that to make much of Christ, much of our Savior, we have no fear. But friends, 
If this was it, this would be enough, right? No fear, freedom from fear. But that's not it. That's not all we have. He says, we also have favor from the Father. We have favor from the Father. I think this is amazing. Instead of fear and dread of death, we have life and peace, as verse 6 indicated. We have a favored position in God's family, which, which, brings to us, which brings us to this amazing doctrine of adoption. You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption. Adoption. It's mentioned only five times in the New Testament, all by Paul. And it is likely that Paul applies this concept from Roman society. Here's how William Barclay explains Roman adoption. He says this, the adopted person lost all rights in his old family and gained all the rights of a legitimate son in his new family. In the most binding legal way, he got a new father. It followed that he became heir to his father's estate. Even if other sons were afterwards born, it did not affect his rights. He was inalienably co-heir with them. In law, the old life of the adopted person was completely wiped out. For instance, all debts were canceled. He was regarded as a new person entering into a new life with which the past had nothing to do. In the eyes of the law, he was absolutely the son of his new father. So here's the idea. Even though there's no blood relationship to a person, a father would bring that child and he would say, this is my son. I make him my son today. He is my own. And he doesn't bring them into a family in a position as a slave notice. It's not like he'd just be my you know, slave. No, as a son, he places immediately, he places him in a position of great favor, his child. And that's exactly what the father does. It's exactly what God does to us. We receive a new status, but not only just status, but a new relationship with our father. New relationship. We have been severed before, but now we're part of the family. We have legal documents to prove it so. And, and guess what? Look what the spirit does, right? Look what the spirit does at the end of verse 15. The Spirit not only brings us this adoption, but He makes us aware. He makes us aware of this new relationship so that we can now, in approaching God, we say, Father, Father. Because we're adopted into His family, Paul says, we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba, Father is a combination of both Aramaic and and Greek words for father, father, father. And, and it is, this, this word Abba is extremely familial term, and it's really derived from just the first sounds that, that an infant makes, like Abba, Baba. You know, like usually the first word that an infant makes is mama, right? That, that cries out mama, right? Here, there's this, familial term where an infant, he recognizes that he has a father, Abba, 
Abba. That's why it's often translated as Papa or Daddy. Daddy. Very close, very personal term. And friends, this is exactly the same term that Jesus, with which Jesus addressed his father in Mark chapter 14, 36, as he prays in the garden just before his death. He says, in Mark, Mark writes in Mark 14, he says, uh, and he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. Abba, Father. And so get this. I think we just need to think and meditate on this a little bit more. The Spirit of Christ, verse 9, who dwells in us, prompts us to relate to God as Jesus related to God. We use exactly the same term. We call our God, we call our Father as Jesus called him. We're in the same family in which Jesus is our older brother. This is, this is amazing. Many of us have earthly families, some don't. Some of us might be proud of our earthly families, some might not be proud. Beloved, but the greatest privilege of every single believer, every single Christian this morning is we belong to God's extraordinary family and our older brother is none other than Christ himself. And I love this in Hebrews, that Christ is not ashamed. Christ is not ashamed to relate to us as brothers, as his brothers. Hebrews chapter two, verse 10 and 11, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things and bring in many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And Jesus Christ leads his brethren, leads his saved in the worship of God as we find quoted in the next verse of Hebrews chapter two. Friend, do you have this type of relationship with God? Ask yourself, how do I, how, how do I relate to God? Do I just relate to him simply as this generic God? Or are you part of the family and you have confidence to draw near the throne of grace because of the son? who invites you to come and to relate to God as the son did. Abba, Father, Abba, Father. You understand the love of God. That's what, that's what John said in 1 John chapter four, right? There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. You have no fear anymore of punishment. You have freedom from fear of condemnation. Why? Because the love of God has been shown to you and you approach him as your father. I think this is an amazing, amazing truth. Now in verse 16, we have another description of the work of the spirit. He says, for you, or uh, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. How exactly the spirit testifies is always a question, right? How do I know 
How does my spirit or the spirit of God testifies to my spirit or does he testify with my spirit? And, and so you probably, if you just pull up, you know, Romans chapter six or chapter eight, verse 16, explanation, interpretation, you'll get all kinds of interpretations. But I think this verse cannot be separated from verses 14 and 15. There's a reason why. In fact, verse 16, I believe, is a, sort of a commentary on verse 15. The Spirit testifies with our spirit, to our spirit, that we are children of God when we cry out, Abba, Father. That's, that's what he does. He causes us to relate to God as to our Father. Cry out. Look with me back at verse 15, right? We cry out. This, this is an important ver, uh, word here in this context. Um, if you look at the Greek Old Testament Septuagint, uh, it is uh, used around 40 times in the book of Psalms, the same exact word, and it's usually a reference to an urgent cry in prayer. It is the exact same word used of Jesus in the garden when he cried out, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, based on Hebrews chapter five. And why is this significant? I think what Paul is perhaps trying to communicate to us is that more often than not, the spirit testifies with our spirit, not when we're having this mountaintop experience, when we're like, you know, killing sin, when we're victorious, whatever, however you wanna qualify that, but quite the opposite. Often it is in our despair, when we're in the dark, when we're hurting, when we're wrestling with our sin, when all we can do is come and pray and say, Father, that is the witness of the Spirit, that we are his children. At the end of the day, deep down in your heart, you have this testimony that you are a child of God. The Spirit leads you in that very moment to be assured of Father's love for you. That his disposition is favorable towards you, that he loves you. And whereby faith, the spirit leads you to cling to the promises of the word of God. Church, it is the spirit that leads you and confirms to you that the gospel promises offered here in the book of Romans are true. That by faith you have been adopted into God's family and you can approach God as your father. Even in the midst of Romans 7 struggle, you have a father in heaven. Someone said the closest is most, and most intimate relationship you can have is the awareness that you belong to a father with a father's arms around you, a father's heart concerned for you, a father's wisdom planning for you, and a father's love protecting and guiding you. When you're feeling guilty and condemned because of your sins, and you read a passage like Romans 1.8 or 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and you think deep down in your heart, thank God. Where is this inner sense of joy and confidence come from? It comes from the Spirit in you, confirming to you the Spirit is testifying to your spirit 
that you are a child of God. So the confidence of our sonship is that the Spirit is leading us to trust Christ and to be transformed into the image of Christ. The characteristic of our sonship is that we have freedom from fear and favor with this Father, that we approach Him and we call Him Abba Father. But there is one more quickly. I want us to look at verse, really first part of verse 17, the confirmation of our sonship, the confirmation of our sonship. He says, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. The confirmation of our sonship is, friends, fellowship with Christ in two aspects. Number one, it is this future fellowship or sharing in his glory. Because you are a child, because you are children, you are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, and look at end of verse 17, so that you may be glorified with him. This is this future fellowship, sharing of his glory. All legitimate children, all legitimately adopted children receive legal rights to an inheritance. Legal right to an inheritance, something that the father leaves for you. In fact, their sonship would be confirmed by their legal right to receive their father's inheritance. And friends, it's exactly the same with us. All children of God, we have this glorious future, we have a glorious inheritance. Remember in Luke chapter 18, there is the story of rich young ruler who came up to Christ and and he asked Christ, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And right away in that, in that um, question there, we have this contradiction. Because receiving an inheritance is not a matter of works. You, you, you can't do anything to receive an inheritance. It is not something that we do, right? It's a matter of having a certain relationship. You receive an inheritance because you relate to someone. You need to be part of the family to receive an inheritance. And so by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are connected to Christ. We are connected to the Father. We receive, and only then do we receive this inheritance. And what is this inheritance? Look, he says in verse 17, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God. Heirs of God. Friends, we, at the end of the day, inherit God. We inherit God. Yes, it is true that we inherit what God promises to us all. We inherit glorious bodies, right? New bodies. Verse 11 said that we're waiting for this resurrection and certainly it will happen. We inherit this new home, new existence. But at the end of the day, we get God. I don't know if, uh, you know what it's like fathers here to be a father, especially of younger children. When you get back home after a long day of work and you open up your garage as you start pulling in and the door opens up and you see your kids standing there waiting for you to walk home. And occasionally they would come up and say, uh, 
Daddy, did you bring anything for us? Did you get something? But for the most part, they come, they run, and they announce Papa's home. They run in, they hug you, and they, they welcome you in. They're glad that you are home. Not that you brought something. I'm sure that's going to outgrow. They're going to become teenagers. Uh, but I'm enjoying this aspect right now of our parenting. Seeing kids just run up to you and that they're glad that you are there. You're going to spend time with them now. Beloved, this is our inheritance. Christ himself. Christ himself. And we get this inheritance only through Christ because he adds quickly in verse 17, and fellow heirs with Christ. To emphasize that our inheritance is only through our union with Christ. With Christ, I have everything. Like, I I might not have a relationship that I want right now. I might not have something that that I believe would make me happy today. But Christian, if you have Christ, you have everything, as we find out right now, and you have everything prepared for you in the future. You have God. But not only are you promised the sharing of future glory, but presently you are promised the sharing of suffering. The confirmation of our sonship is not only in the future sharing of glory, but in the present sharing of his suffering. He says in verse 17, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. We will receive glory with Christ tomorrow if we suffer with him today. What does that mean for us? In case of suffering, we'll come back next Sunday and we will consider this topic of suffering in the next set of verses for us. So friends, as we close here, I I just want us to again bring all these thoughts together and consider this, that we have received the spirit who leads us, who confirms our adoption as God's children, testifies to us that we are God's children, and he prepares us for future glory. We now have fellowship. We worship God and relate to him as our father, as our dad. How? Through faith. Through faith in Christ, you belong to the royal family. What an amazing reality. Friend, do you have this witness? Do you have this conviction that you are a child of God, that you are part of his family? Maybe you're not sure. Maybe you're thinking, I can never be born into this family. Friends, Maybe you've never become a child of God because you've never acknowledged your sinfulness and your need for a savior. Maybe you were attempting to work your way into sonship, but that's not how it works. He declares you. He makes you his son. We can't do it on our own. You become a child of God when you abandon all trust in yourself and put your complete confidence and faith in Christ. And we have this assurance that today you can experience the favor of your heavenly father who longs to see sinners saved and be reconciled to him. You can't call God 
your father. What an amazing truth. As we go about this week, I just want us to consider this. We wake up in the morning, remind yourself, preach to yourself that I have a father who cares for me, whose favor towards me is abundant, whose love has been poured out into our hearts. And that will stir you up to live for your father because family matters. Family matters. You want to honor your family, right? If you know that you have a father, you're going to live in light of that reality. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this truth. We thank you that you are our father and your love is abundant towards us. Oh, help us to always be assured, get back in the word and be reminded of what the gospel proclaims and be stirred up in our affections for Christ and in our walk. Oh, Lord, I pray, may the spirit be among us. May he work, may he expose sin, may he lead us to further holiness and may we be a people that are recognized to be with God. Thank you. We ask and pray these things for your glory and our good. Amen.